the gospel. It's a story of how God created us to be in a relationship with himself. But time and time again, we stubbornly go on our own way. More importantly, it's a story of how God doesn't give up. He loves us so much that when we couldn't save ourselves, he sent his son to save us. He sent Jesus. How we come to know Jesus is the most important story in our lives. Not only is it the story that saved us, but it is also a story that has the power to help others. We call those stories testimonies because they tell the truth of who Jesus is. They testify about what he has done for us. And by sharing our story, we reveal his goodness and his grace to others. There is power in telling your story of how Jesus changed your life. And I believe that story can change the life of people around me. So I will tell the story of who I was and who I am becoming in Jesus. I will tell the story of what he has done in and through me. I will tell the story of how Jesus saved my life. I will testify. Well, good morning, Riverview. It is uh, great to be able to be here with you. My name is Joe Swords, and if we haven't met, it actually just occurred to me that it was 10 years ago that I uh, walked up here for the first time to talk about how I was going to go plant a church in Clio, Michigan. And by God's grace, over the course of 10 years, My wife and I not only uh, got to uh, participate in planting that church, but I was able to pastor a church uh, there uh, just north of Flint and tell a lot of people about Jesus. And uh, the Lord showed us a a lot of grace during that time. And our family grew and we now have five sons. I think when we moved, we had three. And so uh, we're just uh, very thankful for the way that God cared for us over the course of those 10 years. And then earlier this year, we made the decision to step away from uh, the, the pastoral work there in Clio. And by God's grace, he led us through a process uh, where I am now part uh, of an organization called Word Partners. It's based out of Chicago, and I'm the content manager for communications and development uh, as we communicate about two big and important things, in my opinion. Uh, we get to, I get to communicate about how we are training pastors who are under-resourced pastors in, in, in many places that are really hard to get to in how to be able to expositionally preach the Bible. And I get to tell those stories and I get to support trainers uh, as, as we seek to do that. And we also get to work with church planners and pastors who are in the States as well as we help train guys who maybe can't get to seminary or they went to seminary and it's been a long time and they want to continue to work on their preaching. And so uh, this is just where we're at now as a, as a family and, and the work that the Lord has, has uh, moved us in this direction doing. If you want to hear more about Word Partners and the work that we're doing, I would love to talk to you about it more later. But that is not why I'm up here. I'm up here uh, to tell a different story, to tell the story of a woman, Rahab the prostitute. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me over to the beginning of Joshua. Uh, And we are going to uh, more or less be in Joshua chapter 2. We'll end up in a couple of other places uh, throughout 
the text of scripture this morning, but largely we're going to be walking through the story of this woman who lived in a city called Jericho. And so we're working through this series now uh, called Testify. And what you're going to hear this morning are ways that Rahab, the prostitute, testifies about who God is, both through her words and her actions. But bigger than that, you're going to hear a little bit of how, about how God testifies about who he is and about his economy of grace as he saves a prostitute through his free grace. So as we come into this text and we begin to encounter this person named Rahab, we're stepping into a story that's already been unfolding. This is a story that began unfolding with creation. And, and you've, you've heard parts of this story already. You've heard parts of this story where God created humanity perfect, He created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and they walked with God and they spent time with him. But then Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They disobeyed his word and they didn't trust him. They listened instead to the voice of Satan and to their own desires and they fell. Now when they fell, if you go back and you read Genesis chapter 3, you find that not only did they fall into sin, but in the moment of them falling into sin, God brought a promise of grace. That there was going to be someone who would come, born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. And so God's story of grace, his freely giving favor to people who don't deserve it and haven't earned it, his economy of grace begins in the garden. And as that story progresses through Genesis, you eventually meet a a man named Abraham. Now, Abraham is this guy that God just comes to him and says, I want to take you and move you someplace else. And through you, I'm going to create this great nation of people. And I'm going to place you in a promised land. And so Abraham takes his wife, Sarah, and and they move. And and Abraham's getting older and he doesn't have kids. And he's beginning to wonder, are God's promises true? And so in Genesis chapter 15, you can read more about this, but God comes to him and he tells Abraham his promises again. I am going to make a great nation out of you. And I'm going to give your people this promised land. And in Genesis 15, we see that grace... And faith are interlocked because Abraham believed God's words and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not because of his deeds, but because he believed. This is God's economy of grace, giving him grace through faith. And then that story progresses. And several hundred years later, Abraham's people have grown and they're a great nation and they're enslaved and they're in Egypt. And God raises up another man named Moses. And Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And as he leads the people out of Egypt, he takes them across the Red Sea on dry ground. And and maybe you've seen some of those images from the Ten Commandments or from the Prince of Egypt as he takes them out. And then as, as Moses leads the people out into the wilderness, they go to a mountain, Mount Sinai, where God delivers and gives to his people his law. And as God gives his law to his people, we begin to see not just that God gives grace and that he gives grace through faith, but he also is showing us that we need grace. And so through Moses, our need for grace is exposed. 
Well, Moses leads God's people to the promised land. And he leads them up to this river called the Jordan River, and they're ready to go into the promised land, to take this land that was promised to them through Abraham so many hundreds of years before. But the people don't believe. They have no faith. And they end up wandering through the wilderness for 40 years until the people who had no faith have died and their children have grown up. And now there's a man named Joshua who follows Moses. And Joshua leads the people back to the Jordan River. And as he comes to the Jordan River and all of the nation of Israel is ready to go in and take the promised land, Joshua picks out two men. And he takes, tells those two men, you will be spies. You're going to go in and you're going to scout out the land. You're especially going to scout out the city of Jericho, this fortified city. We have to take that city if we're going to enter the promised land. And so the prophets go into Jericho. And when they go into Jericho, they, you read about this in Joshua chapter 2. They go into Jericho and they end up at a prostitute's house. Okay? That might raise some questions. Now, you can ask those questions, but the text doesn't answer them. Because the text is more interested in who this prostitute is. Enter Rahab. The two spies are in the house with Rahab and the king of Jericho hears about it. They come, the soldiers come in and they begin looking and Rahab commits treason. She says, the spies aren't here. I, I, they, I saw them, I talked to them, but they're gone. When she had actually hidden them on her roof under some grain and then she sends the soldiers away after committing treason. She goes up and she tells them, I know who your God is. I know what he's doing. We are panicking. We have no hope. Please save me. And the spies tell her, if you stay in your house, anyone that you gather into this house with you will be saved when we take Jericho. And she believed them. She trusted them. And then she sent them out on their way. She warned them, go stay in the hills a few days, wait for the soldiers to finish their search, and then go back to your camp. And they do that. They go back to their camp, and then they put together their battle plans that God has created, and, and the army comes to Jericho. Many of you have heard the songs and the stories, and the army begins marching silently, Day one, two, three, four, five, six. The people of Israel marching around Jericho. And then on day seven, they march around the city seven times. And at the end, the trumpets are blown and, and they give a great shout. And you know what happens? That the walls fall down, all except one portion of the wall. Because that's where Rahab's house was. And by faith, through the economy of grace that gives favor when it is undeserved, God saves Rahab. This is the story, this is the woman that we meet this morning. We're going to look at what she testifies and what God testifies in three ways. Through her words, through her actions, and through God's plan. So point number one, Rahab 
testifies of God's covenant promises through her words of faith. Rahab testifies that genuine faith believes and speaks the true things that God has revealed about himself. We can see this in the text. If you look at Joshua chapter 2, in verse 8, we begin to hear her speaking. She has sent the guards away. And before the men, the two spies fell asleep. She went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. You see what she's saying here in the text. She is confessing something about the Lord, that the Lord has given you this land. Now, just a few minutes ago, I made reference to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, this place where in verse 6, where Abram, who later took on the name from God, Abraham, believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. In that chapter, God makes covenant promises to Abram. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, he says, on that day, on that day that Abraham had believed God and it was counted to Abraham as righteousness, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land, this is the promised land, the land where Jericho is, I give this land to you and to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Canaanites. And what is it that Rahab has said? I know that the Lord has given you this land. Rahab believed God's covenant promises. And she's talking to the spies on the basis of her faith in God's covenant promises. She also believes and confesses what is true about God, that he is the one true God. Uh, Look there in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 11. After she tells about God's deeds and the things that he has done, conquering Egypt and other kingdoms, she says, when we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God of heaven above and on earth below. I mean, this here is a, we would say, okay, that's a nice little phrase for her to say, to make this comment about God is God in heaven and God is God on earth below. That's a, that's a nice thing. But for her to make this statement, she's not only making a statement about who God is, but she's making a statement about who is not God. We can see an example of what she's saying is not true if we were to look over to 1 Kings chapter 20. In 1 Kings chapter 20, there is this debate going on. There are some people that have been fighting with the Israelites and and they're not winning and they're trying to figure out why are we not winning? We should be winning and, and what's taking place here? And so the king of Aram's servants said to him, their gods are the gods of the hill country. That is why they were stronger than we were. Instead, we should fight with them on the plain. Then we will certainly be stronger than they are. And if you were to drop down to verse 28, you see that... 
The man of God approached and said to the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says, because the Arameans have said, the Lord is God of the mountains and not a God of the valleys. I will hand over all this whole huge army to you that you will know that I am the Lord. The Canaanite perspective was, there's a God up in the hills. There's a God down in the valleys. There's a God up in the sky and there's a God down on earth. And Rahab looks and says, I see what God's been doing. And I know that there is no other God in heaven and that there is no other God on earth. She believes and confesses the true things that God has revealed about himself as he has conquered the gods of Egypt and he has conquered the gods of the other Canaanites leading up to this point through what God has been doing through his people. And so as Rahab is making these confessions with her words, we should hear the invitation that is given to us that Rahab's testimony of words about God's covenant promises and about who he is invites us to believe and tell others of God's new covenant promises. Now this idea of the new covenant promises is different than the old covenant promises that you find in the law. The new covenant promises have to do with Jesus and the work that Jesus has done. And you actually see baked into the story of Rahab, you see a picture of what Jesus has done. You see, when Rahab was talking to the spies, she said to the spies, please let, save me and, and, and my family's house. And the spies said, whoever is with you in your house, when we come, will be saved. What they're telling her is because of your faith and trust in God, whoever is hidden with you will also be saved. Now, if you were around for the If Then series, maybe this is already peaking a little memory from the verses that were looked at week after week as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossians that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. That this idea of there being someone who is faithful and trusting God, working on our behalf, that we are then hidden inside of him. This is part of the new covenant promise. And we see a little picture of this taking place with Rahab as her family is hidden inside of her house. And because of her faith, they are saved. Because of Jesus' faithfulness as he goes to the cross and dies in our place for our sins, we can be hidden in him as we trust in him. And we can begin to communicate. We can, as we believe this, communicate to others that there is a place for us despite all of the long history of Joseph sword's sins, that there's a place where I am hidden, where I will be saved. And we are invited by Rahab to give words to these new covenant promises. Well, for Rahab, her words of faith lead to actions of faith. So this brings us to our second main point that Rahab testifies of God's faithfulness through her actions of faith. Fundamentally, Rahab feared God rather than man. I, I don't think that most of us in this room can fully realize and understand the gravity of the situation with, this, with the soldiers standing at her door and the spies on her roof and one noise from the spies and her life is over. But in the face of that, because she believed the covenant promises of God and who he was, she chose treason by faith. 
Some people at this point get hung up on the reality if you look at the text that she lies to the soldiers. How could God give favor to this woman who lies? The question, I've heard the question asked. You may be asking the question, but I would just remind you that that if you're asking that question, that this is a great opportunity for you to begin to alter your thinking about the nature of God's grace because it is precisely sinners who lie and sinners who are prostitutes who receive God's grace. As she trusted and, and stumbled along in following him, she did lie as she committed treason. But even through this, in, the, in, the, in these moments of, of this taking place in her life, this fear that she exhibited in the Lord by hiding and helping the spies makes Rahab into an example of faith. We actually read about her again in James' letter. In James chapter 2, verses 22 through 26, James writes this. You see that faith was active together with his works, speaking here about Abraham. And by his works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You see, as Rahab believed and spoke about who God was, she also acted according to what she believed. One pastor who wrestled through this idea during the Reformation summarized what the spirit is teaching us through Rahab's life. This is what he had to say. We say that justification is effective without works, not that faith is without works. Because as we believe, so we live. Whatever it is that we believe alters how it is that we live. And as we trust who God is and the promises that he has made, so we live according to those, even as we stumble along the way. And because of her faith, this lying prostitute becomes an example of a life of faith. She does this through the economy of grace, God giving favor to her that is unearned, but on the basis of her faith. We also see that Rahab waited on the Lord. Not only did she face the soldiers by faith, but when the spies left and she communicated with the spies, before they left, she said to them in Joshua chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, speaking to them here in verse 12, now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I have shown kindness to you. She bases the promise of life that they won't come back and kill her on a promise made before the Lord. And then the spies leave and she waits and she waits and she waits and then she hears the thumping of soldiers' feet and she hears that they have crossed the Jordan River on dry ground and the army of the Lord is coming and they march day after day after day as she waits for the faithfulness of God 
to save her life. By faith, Rahab waited. She didn't just say, I've seen what the Lord has done in the past, but I will wait on what the Lord will do in the future to save my life. I think the writer of Hebrews really ties these together as he writes about Rahab and the spies. As he tells us in Hebrews 11.31 that by faith Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and then didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Her actions of faith, of waiting and of saving the spies come together. The reality is that genuine faith works itself out in action. Genuine faith is based on God's character, based on God's word and making decisions then on the truthfulness of what God has said about himself and about us. As we look at Rahab's actions of faith, Rahab invites us to trust God's faithfulness by making decisions based on what and who God has called you to be in his word. What does it mean for us to do that though? What does it mean to wait on the Lord, to exercise faith in these ways? Well, it could be something as simple, although difficult, something as simple as trusting the faithfulness of God's justice when you have been wronged by a coworker, rather than seeking to take revenge upon them in like manner. It could be as life-encompassing as waiting for the moment when Jesus will bring heaven on earth rather than spending your life trying to craft your own heaven on earth because you've believed the new covenant promises that you've been saved by Jesus and the day will come when he will not only perfect you, but he will create the world anew and invite you into that space. As we hear Rahab's words, as we hear her actions testifying of God's faithfulness, there's something more important, more foundational, perhaps we could say, than her words and her actions. It's God's plan of redemption. This brings us to our third and final point, that God testifies about his economy of grace through the unfolding events surrounding Rahab's life. God saved Rahab on the basis of faith not on the basis of her moral purity. He saved her on the basis of faith, not on the basis of what she deserved. This right here is the shocking reality of Rahab's story. He saved a lying prostitute. That's the shocking nature. That's the economy of grace at work here. When you read through the story about Rahab, you begin to hear her name, but you keep seeing her name attached to that word. Rahab, the prostitute. And sometimes it's just the prostitute. And yet God saved her. He was faithful. If you were to turn over just a couple of pages in your Bible to Joshua chapter six, following the battle after the walls have fallen to the ground, we discover that he was faithful. 
In Joshua chapter 6, verse 23, the young men who had scouted, they went and they brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. Verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her because she hid the messengers of Joshua sent to spy on Jericho. And she lives in Israel today at the time that this was written. God was faithful to his covenant promises. But it's scandalous because as you read and you hear Rahab mentioned eight times, she's called the prostitute six times. But you remember back at the beginning, I said that God showed grace in the garden. And then he showed how grace and faith were linked with Abraham But then Moses came and Moses revealed the need for grace. And if you were to go back and read Moses, you would actually find that Moses had a lot to say. God, speaking through Moses, had a lot to say about prostitutes. In Leviticus, they are associated with goat demons. They are considered debasing and depraved. They are cut off from God's chosen nation. In Numbers chapter 25... God says that according to Israel's national law, they should be executed. And then in Deuteronomy 23, just before the people get back to the promised land, God reminds them that their wages are detestable. And yet, because of God's economy of grace, the debasing, depraved, cut off, deserving of death, detestable prostitute Rahab becomes a model of saving faith and a recipient of God's favor. One commentator trying to work through this comes to the recognition that this prostitute who would actually be considered more sinful than the average Canaanite is the most unlikely candidate for admission into the kingdom of God. It's actually her faith that strengthens Israel's faith. This is the way that God's economy of grace is at work. This is the reality for us as well, that the law of God exposes how undeserving of favor Rahab and we are. But God's plan of redemption shows off his economy of free grace given to us through Jesus' work on the cross. There's another piece in this. That in God's economy of grace, he not only saved her life, but he literally welcomed Rahab into his family. If you go back there to Joshua chapter 6 and verse 23, look at the end of that verse. Where does she end up? She ends up outside the camp. Now, we don't have time to go develop the theology of outside the camp, but I'll just tell you, it's not great. Outside the camp is where the, the sinners and the sacrifices go. Now, there are some references and moments where outside the camp of the work that God did was good. But the overall theme coming to this moment in Scripture is that she was placed outside the camp because she's unclean. But when you drop down to verse 25, you find out that something changed. Because in verse 25, Joshua writes that she still lives where? In Israel today. Somewhere along the lines, Rahab went from outside the camp to inside the promised land. 
And most likely that took place through a man named Salmon. Or if you really love fish, we can just go with salmon. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 1 and you begin to read these genealogies that we can so often skip over because it's a bunch of names we can't pronounce and we vaguely know just a handful of them, we discover Salmon who followed Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David, who you may have heard of. And as you read to the end of this genealogy, you hear that a man named Jacob fathered Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And through God's economy of grace, he not only saved the life of a lying prostitute, but welcomed her into the family that she would be mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. You see, through the events surrounding Rahab's life, God invites us, sinners, impure, immoral people, into his family, not on the basis of our moral purity, but on the basis of faith in his son, that we would find ourselves hidden in his work on the cross. And through Rahab, God testifies to you through the events of Rahab's life and beyond. There is no sin or collection of sins that God will not willingly forgive when we trust Christ. There is no limit to the favor that God can pour out upon you when you place your trust in Christ. The reality is that if we could know in this room the moral history, which I thank the Lord that we cannot know this, the moral history of the individuals in this room joining us online, that the person who would seem based upon that least likely to believe, least likely to receive God's favor, that in the economy of God's grace is the most likely to become an example of faith to us all and most probable to lead others to Jesus. With this in mind, I would encourage you this week, challenge you, I think the word is, to tell someone how God has graciously, in his economy of grace, shown you favor through Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the glimpse into Rahab's life that we can see in the way that you dealt with Rahab, the way that you deal with us in Christ. That a guy like me can stand here and brothers and sisters can stand here and sing and 
praise you and you receive the praises of us sinners with joy because we are hidden in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would draw us in faith to walk according to that faith in a way that we become examples of faith to the world around us that both our words and our actions testify of who you are and what you have done. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.